you go to war against the bad guys and nothing much changes. At some point, it is no longer satisfying. And the real evolution of our consciousness right now is beyond that. On a soul level, we no longer want to organize the world into us versus them and good versus evil. You mentioned earlier uh, interbeing. That's the emerging understanding of our time that, that knows that anything that's happening anywhere is also happening inside of ourselves. Can you make some psychic predictions? What will the world look like 10 years from now? Yeah, I cannot make that prediction because that's really up to us. We're at a point of choice. It's more, rather than a prediction, I would rather make an invocation or a prophecy, which is to speak something into existence. And that prophecy would be that the world in 10 years will finally turn the corner and we will be collectively seeking to translate our emergent, holistic, interbeing consciousness into new systems and new ways of relating, new politics, new economics. Hello, this is Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan. Welcome to The Dr. E Show, a show exploring the frontiers of our human possibilities in areas like health and wellness, science and spirituality, quantum biology, and conscious living, so that together we can awaken the best of ourselves and create our most joyful and fulfilling lives. Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, there lived a civilization of humans on the planet known as Earth. Their year of 2020 would eventually become known throughout the cosmos as the time of the Great Initiation. During this Great Initiation, humans woke up from the dream of separation and began to live from the new state known as interbeing. They woke up not just by the dozens, not just by the hundreds, but by the millions, and eventually the billions. They came together in peace, love, and harmony, and re-architected their society from this new state of consciousness. And they found brilliant and elegant win-win solutions in all areas of life, including economics, ecology, health, relationship, and so much more. So today, let us use the Internet Archive Wayback Machine and go into that era of the Great Initiation to learn from one of the greatest thinkers and luminaries of that generation, Mr. Charles Eisenstein. Charles was known throughout the world and throughout the cosmos for his gift of putting into words what so many sensitive souls felt inspiring humanity to dream a bigger dream and to co-create the more beautiful world their hearts knew was possible. So without further ado, let us welcome the author of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, the ascent of humanity, climate, the new story, the legendary Charles Eisenstein. Well, <laughs> I'm uh, not quite sure who you're talking about here, but <laughs> Uh, if we look back from the future, so speaking from, I don't know, what year were you speaking from? The year 3000, maybe? Okay, let's go there. Yeah, yeah I would say that like one of, the, one of the reasons that we 
so revere and respect our ancestors who lived in the 21st century was that they did all of the hard work to build the paradise that we live in today without even knowing if it was going to happen. At that time, for many of them, maybe most of them, it seemed like they were faced with an impossible task. Yet, even when their minds said it was impossible, that the forces against change were too powerful, they kept doing it anyway because they were listening to their hearts, which told them that actually it is possible. And actually, the beautiful visions of healing and forgiveness and, and hope that you've received are true. And they, they are the future uh, calling to us. And it's a real future that we can actually walk down. So that's one thing I really appreciate about the people of that time. Uh, and not only like the semi-famous ones, such as this uh, guy, Charles Eisenstein, you mentioned, you know, but, but really like the real heroes are the ones who didn't even get celebrated and they still did that work. And that's why in the year 3000, we celebrate them today. Even if we don't know their names, we can still feel the ripples of their humble sacrifices and their work doing humble things like taking care of children, you know, that no one applauded them for. And they never knew that, that those moments of where they transmuted their anger into forgiveness, where they just didn't even yell at their kid that day, uh, where they trusted these outreaches from the future that they called attachment parenting to raise their kids in a different way or to give birth in a different way from the prevailing custom of the time. Uh, that was so important in building the, the foundation of the future. So I, I want to uh, honor those, the humble ancestors um, of that time. Charles, probably everybody listening has heard of you, but in case um, we have a few that haven't, can you give us a bit of backstory? How did you come to hold on to this access to your heart when everything in this society is indoctrinating us into a different direction? Oh, well, to the extent that I do hold access to my heart, it's because of the help that I receive when my heart uh, shuts down, when I don't have access to it, then, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes it stays that way for a while, but sometimes some bright spirit comes along and uh, opens it up again, or just shows me unconditional love, or just maybe even sometimes on the internet, you know, someone just supports me in some significant way that just touches me at the, just the right moment. This is, yeah, keeping your heart open, like at least for me, it's not an accomplishment, you know, it's, it's a gift that uh, like even now in this moment, uh, you know, your gleeful, funny introduction, that kind of opened my heart, you know? <laughs> so this is something that we can do for each other. And, and when my heart's open, then I can help other people. Uh, and when theirs is open, they can help me. And, and so we're all kind of opening up together. Yeah, we, well, I wish I could turn that into like some kind of advice. Okay, audience, here's what you do to keep your heart open. But really, if anything, it's to acknowledge the truth that our hearts are open through the generosity of the universe. And maybe even acknowledging that truth and feeling the gratitude of that. Like, thank you for all that has fed my heart, for all that has reminded me what's true, reminded me that love is what's real. Thank you for all of that. And, and that recognition itself does open the heart. 
Okay, so recently you wrote some essays, The Coronation and The Conspiracy Myth, and I've had some similar experiences that I've heard you having where you share your nuanced perspective on all of the craziness going on in this planet right now. And you get, you get all these different comments. It stirs up a lot and people wanting to accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist or a right-wing fascist or different things. How does that not yeah. close your heart? Um, well, I say thank you for the, the psychiatric diagnosis, free of charge. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, that's a joke, actually. Um, it, I, I can't say it doesn't close my heart. Sometimes it does. And I, I noticed my defensiveness coming up and my protest and old wounds if it's not fair. And also like this indignation. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but this, it, it kind of triggers my indignation at the uh, cosmic injustice that prevails on our planet, you know? And, and here's like one little filament of it that is visiting my own life. And then of course, anytime that something is triggering like that, uh, and brings up an emotional response, you got to ask, okay, how much of it is true? Or what is the truth that this is carrying? So, and then also uh, what helps me actually is to understand where the criticisms might be coming from. Uh, and it's not to like dismiss it entirely. Oh, okay. This person's just projecting their own wounds of whatever. Uh, Cause there always is a grain of truth. I find even in the most unfair criticism, there's always something to look at. This mirror has come for some reason, but that doesn't mean I accept it wholesale either, but I look for the grain of truth and then also try to understand. In fact, this actually helps me find the grain of truth to understand where it's coming from. So today we have a situation where the structures of society and maybe even more important, the structures of our narratives about the world, the structures you could even say of reality and normality are dissolving. And the panic that that causes, the fear, uh, prompts people to grasp for some way to hold meaning, to hold their categories about the world. The primary category, like the underlying substructure of a lot of the modern mind's organization of the world is good versus evil, us versus them. And in, in times of uncertainty and, and um, a uh, threat to identity, people grasp all the more for some narrative in which they're the good ones. And for that to happen, you have to have somebody who's the bad one. You have to have an enemy. You have to dehumanize them and make them into, into you know, what we see online with these criticisms. You, know, you take a very nuanced or complex position and you simplify it into something despicable and then array yourself in opposition to that. And then you know, you're good, they're bad. And, and so I th this is just one of the things feeding into the intense polarization that we find online. And so some of it, you know, I, I read, and I'm, I'm not like, I don't actually read the comments very much, but, but sometimes even if I'm reading someone else's stuff, I'll look into the comments, you know, and just see the vehemence of the attacks, you know, and I'm like, Wow, what, what, um, you know, here is 
somebody desperate to know that they are good. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to do it. And I don't, I, I don't want to like oversimplify it. I'm not saying that that's the only thing feeding in, into the incivility uh, online, but it's part of it. It's an identity crisis. And it's also kind of an addiction to a certain lens through which to see the world. And, and even those who are critiquing and protesting and dissenting from the dominant worldview, they kind of do the same thing. So the dominant worldview has its version of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And a common step out of that worldview is simply to reverse it and to name all of the authorities, whether they are historical figures or the people that our society elevates and holds um, in high status to see them as the bad guys. And this is kind of the conspiratorial mindset, basically seeing the world as being run by a vast evil conspiracy. And so here you have another totalizing discourse to replace the one that defines normal, where, you know, humanity is progressing thanks to technology and reason and science and toward a better and better world. And our authorities are shepherding us toward this world and we have to become better educated and like all of that gets turned on its head. And, and so here there's a new explanation of everything and a new good guy and bad guy. So that's actually not a very big step away from the conventional worldview, but it is a step. And so I think there might be, you know, there's that happening and then there's the reaction to that. So how does that yo-yo between the good guys, bad guys, and then flip-flopping, oh no, the bad guys are actually the good guys. And then how does that journey happen where you transcend beyond that stalemate? Um, I think it's, it's a natural process where the new explanatory mythology also becomes unsatisfying. It leads to burnout, you know, because you go to war against the bad guys and nothing much changes. And in fact, it leads to a kind of despair because if it's true that evil is in charge of the world, it's hopeless. How are you going to overcome them if they're in charge of the world? That state of being, of being like this persecuted minority who's the real Illuminati, Uh, so the standard conspiracy worldview where there's an Illuminati in charge, it's actually mirrored in the psychology of those who uh, hold those theories to begin with in that we're the Illuminati because we're the ones who know about it. We are the illumined ones. We're the ones who actually understand the way that the world works. And that identity and that way of giving ourselves approval only carries us so far. At some point, it is no longer satisfying. And the real evolution of our consciousness right now is beyond that. On a soul level, we no longer want to organize the world into us versus them and good versus evil. You mentioned earlier uh, interbeing. Uh, That's the emerging understanding of our time that, that knows that anything that's happening anywhere is also happening inside of ourselves. And so it's just a matter of growing into that understanding. What's the difference between 
a sense of interconnectedness versus interbeing. Why do you like to choose that term from Thich Nhat Hanh, I think? Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh is the first person that I know of to use the word. Uh, although I wouldn't be surprised if someone else used it before because it's such a natural term to describe it. Before I heard it from Thich Nhat Hanh, I was using the word interbeingness, which is not nearly as poetic, but it's the same idea. And the reason that that, that term occurs so naturally is that what we're talking about is more than separate selves having connections and being interconnected or interdependent but it's that our very existence is part of each other's existence. So if it's not only, so for example, it's not only that I, uh, that you and I both depend on the Amazon for its role in anchoring the global hydrological system. It's so we're dependent on it. It's not only that we're connected to it in that way. It's also that, the Amazon is part of ourselves. And if, as the Amazon is destroyed, something in ourselves is being destroyed too. It's the understanding that if there are people in poverty and degradation in this world, then we ourselves, no matter how we insulate from them, we ourselves are also poor and degraded. That's, that's why it's called interbeing. Did you come to this understanding intuitively, experientially, or through like rational scientific analysis? <laughs> I, I think it's just kind of obvious. It, it's, it's, a, it's an understanding that's, that's rising everywhere. Um, How is it possible that it was not obvious for so many decades? Because it wasn't, because it's been growing and emerging, uh, and and it's uh, it's now become a zeitgeist. Whereas fifty or hundred years ago, it was much harder to see this truth of interbeing, because we were immersed in scientific paradigms that directly contradicted it, and economic an economic system that contradicted it, uh, and just the the experience of humanity in progress being the conquest of the other, the conquest of nature, of the beasts, of the germs, of the barbarians. That, that was the movement of the time. And it seemed a hundred years ago to be working really well. And the world was improving rapidly, it seemed. Today, it no longer seems that way. And so the hold of the story of separation that, that has us as separate individuals in, in a world of other, that story is no longer so compelling because it's not working very well. And then it's also been eroding from the inside. I mean, for me, it actually was a result of scientific inquiry when I became aware in my early 20s of um, chaos theory, um, emergence, quantum observer dependence, quantum acausality. These new scientific paradigms did not support uh, the world, the Newtonian worldview of a bunch of independent, discrete objects governed by deterministic forces. So it's scientifically obsolete. It is no longer working economically or uh, ecologically, socially, politically. 
So there's not a lot to hold people in that story of separation, not the, the, the hypnotic effect of our mythology, of our narratives and our systems is weakening. And so this realization is happening to more and more people with less and less provocation, not to mention like the psychedelic phenomena that have been operating in, in our society kind of underneath the surface. But, but that's another thing that's, that's loosening the hold of the story of separation. It was important for in, in my development as well. So yeah, it's not like, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that both the the intuition, the revelation, and the logical articulation of interbeing are more and more available to more and more people. Okay. So as systems break down, we're aware that so many aspects of the old world hasn't been working for a lot of us for a long time. Tell us about when we should work on building bridges and when we should just like completely abandon the old way of being because we're kind of straddling worlds right now and it's deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, like one thing I, I'll, I'll add that's related to this question. In a way, it never was working. Our, I was just thinking, uh, you mentioned your children, you know, I have four children also. Uh, and I think both of us have kind of jumped ship off the old paradigm of birth, where the mother is a patient in a hospital, you know, giving, uh, going through this medicalized procedure. At one point in my life, luckily before I started having children, before I started being a father, I became aware that almost everything about the modern way of birth was wrong. And that was part of my realization that almost every institution of our culture is totally wrong from literally birth to literally death and everything in between, healthcare, education, child rearing, politics, money, uh, technology, everything. Uh, and, and, and I mean, even specific things, you know, the music industry, you know, the film industry, like there's this, there's this wrongness that pervades everything. And, and even in the robust heyday of our culture, which might be the 50s or the 60s, it was already wrong. I mean, that's the era when, when you know, breastfeeding was considered backward and mothers were encouraged to adopt the scientific practice of giving their children scientifically formulated you know, baby formula. So, okay. So... But it, because the aspiration, because the mythology of humanity conquering nature and rising above nature was so strong that it was hard to see that it wasn't working. And, and also a lot of the effects are cumulative um, and, and they build over time, over the generations. So now we have still the hold of that mythology is strong um, and still most just to take the childbirth example, still most women, they end up in the hospital. And there's still a very high rate of, of you know, the, this medicalized birth. And if somebody still needs to explore that story and discover the wrongness of it, I, I release them to that journey. And I see myself as more of a welcoming committee, part of a welcoming committee into a new story. 
not as somebody's going to go in and lecture you on you're doing it wrong. Because that itself is kind of part of the old story. Part of the old story is that change happens when you force change to happen. Newtonian physics, you exert a force on a mass and something changes. And so if you're going to change the world, you better be very forceful. You better have a lot of power. Just think of that in terms of birth, though. Like, you don't have to... Yes, there is a, a time to push, but it is a process. You don't have to understand it to do it. And when the time to exert force comes, you, you know it in your body. So this has been my approach to be more, like, as I said, more of a welcoming committee. So, Because when people start stepping out of that story and they start to realize that, wow, childbirth is all messed up, or wow, healthcare is all messed up, or wow, the music industry is all messed up, at first you think that that is the bad apple in the barrel and everything else is okay. But soon you realize that, and you think, well, you know, science, that's still impeccable. You know, academia, that's the remaining fortress of rectitude in our society. Like there's still a refuge where things are okay. But then you realize that all of our systems contain each other and, and are embedded within each other. And there is no refuge. There is no uh, institution of our culture that's, that's still sound. And that's very disorienting for people when they realize that there's nothing to hold on to. And, and, and so people step into, I call it the space between stories. When as the old story disintegrates, maybe starting with one thing and then spreading, so there's like no ground to stand on. People need to be, to be held in and to know that it's okay that there is another side. Uh, there is the, this, this confusion, this bewilderment, this vertigo, this dissolving of, of what's real and of even who you are. Like you don't know anymore what's real and who you are. This is not a permanent state. There is another story waiting for you that will again help you make sense of the world and know who you are. And so we can make offerings of that story. We can make offerings from that story. Uh, we can be agents of that story to people who are going through this process. And, and we can trust that this process is happening to more and more people. And some aren't ready. So you know, how, have... how do you discern the best use of your energy in those types of conversations where it feels right to reach out a hand and build bridges? And how do you know when is possibly a waste of your energy to engage? You know, I mean, I, I just kind of probe, you know, I push it a little farther, a little farther. I'll make some comment and see how, how they react. You know, I'll just offer a little hint because it's kind of dangerous right now. If you, if you say too directly that you- uh, People think of think... you as a murderer if you ask certain questions, actually. Right. It's, it's yeah. very intense sometimes. So yeah, this is, it's, it's much like it was um, under, uh, in totalitarian countries, uh, like in the Soviet bloc, you know. Actually, I was in Taiwan during martial law and people were, there were a lot of people who, you know, secretly believed in Taiwan independence, um, who were opposed to the, to the KMT, to the ruling party. But you could not say such things publicly. So if you met somebody else and you maybe thought that they were sympathetic, 
you'd offer just the tiniest of hints that you might hold these views. And then the other person wouldn't trust you right away either, but they might respond with a tiny hint, you know, and then the conversation develops. So I think we humans know how to, we, we can sense danger. Uh, one of the biggest dangers for a human being is rejection by the tribe, ostracism. That's one of the biggest dangers that we know. Uh, and so we, 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 we know how to operate. We know how to do that. Okay. So if there was a certain point, this is a kind of, I feel uncomfortable even talking about this. So I think we need to talk about yeah. this. I mean, we could get kicked off, you know, we could get deplatformed if we say certain things. Everybody knows what things those are. And many people will say, well, good. You should be deplatformed because this is dangerous information. If you know, if you are absolutely certain that, I don't know, just pick one. If you're absolutely certain that universal vaccine acceptance is essential to protect the public health, if that is incontrovertible fact, then if you dissent from that, you are dangerous and you are not in truth because this is the truth. So you must be either stupid, ignorant, or immoral. So why, why, what benefit is there from letting these views get, get a platform? Uh, you know, in order to protect everything good, you should get banned. Uh, so it's really understandable. Uh, I mean, imagine if we're talking about somebody who's, and they've got a big following, who's saying, um, I don't know, like pick something ridiculous, you know, that's saying that, that for the good of society, we have to uh, exterminate all the genetically inferior people, you know, and, and like, maybe you don't want, like, this, these are not black and white issues, you know, maybe there is a time to uh, silence certain voices. I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to advocate any absolute principle uh, that, you know, that says you should never silence someone's voice. It's simpler if you have an absolute principle like that, but we get into trouble when we apply absolute abstract principles to a world that is relative and relational. So I can understand why people would want to deplatform us if we you know, enter territory of seeing skepticism or G, you know, if we talk about that 5G maybe does have health dangers or glyphosate or something like that, or I can name many, many other issues that are getting silenced. A lot of them, like a lot of anti-war websites now are getting shut down um, or, you know, demoted in algorithms and stuff. Anything, generally speaking, anything that challenges uh, deeply held official narratives is risks getting deplatformed, um, which totally makes sense if you equate those official narratives with reality itself. Because then anyone challenging them must be somehow deranged, you know? So what's the solution? Obviously censorship has its dangers because then how does evolution and new thinking ever happen, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I think right now our society is, has veered way, way, way too far toward silencing 
dissenting voices. And, and we don't have to make it an absolute principle that no one should ever be silenced in order to say it's happening way too much right now. And that, I mean, this is my personal view that it's not like that everything that the dissenting voices are saying is true. That couldn't be because they contradict each other also. But that there are important truths that are excluded from dominant narratives right now. And, and, and that these are bubbling to the surface as best they can. And those who are threatened by those truths are doing their best to shut them down. And we've seen in, in the last decade um, some, some important truths bubbling up, like with the Me Too movement. You know, I mean, originally what that was about, it's like there are stories that are not being heard and they need to be heard. There is truth that has been suppressed and it's coming up to the surface. And, and the same thing with, with police violence. Um, like, it's not like it all of a sudden started happening in 2019 or 2020. I mean, you know, it's been happening for a couple hundred years at least. But this suppressed truth that was not talked about in polite society is now bubbling to the surface. Now, when this happens, then there are uh, orthodox forces that try to take that energy and channel it toward their own ends and, and even turn it toward serving the status quo. But the basic phenomenon of hidden truth coming out, that is a sign that the overall mythology is breaking down. And I think that's a good thing. And, and I want to do my part to uh, encourage that. <laughs> Even when some of the excluded views may not be true, but they should be looked at. You know, I mean, I've even, you know, I mean, there's, there's, for example, you know, a lot of well-educated people believe the earth is flat, uh, that it's, that we've been lied to on such a profound level that even this basic fundamental tenet of the scientific worldview is, is, is false and that satellites are hoaxes and that the earth is a disk surrounded by a wall of ice that we call Antarctica. And there's a whole well-elaborated theory there. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to just discard that because it contradicts what I've learned, what I think I know. I'm going to really go there. And, you know, I, I did, this is many years ago. I really went there, you know, and in the end I decided, you know, the earth is actually round. And I came to that conclusion, not because it was just too offensive to contemplate that that might be wrong. And I think that, that if everybody did this and really, um, and maybe no one has time to do that with every issue, but like the really contentious ones, like the vaccine issue, if everybody on both sides really went into the other side, you know, not just, usually what people do is they read their own side's narration of the other side. And then they think, oh, I know what the other side is saying but they never actually go read the best material from the other side. So all they get is like a caricature of the other side. Right. And I think that on, on, on so many issues, you know, from vaccines to herbal medicine to psi phenomena, um, if, if, if people like actually said, okay, I'm going to drop what I think I know and humbly visit the worldview of another person, then our society would change radically. 
would we end up with would we end up embracing the dissenting view on everything? No, not necessarily. Because I think that the the dissidents are subject to a lot of the same psychology that the mainstream people are. The selection bias, you know, the, the various cognitive biases that exclude information that doesn't fit your worldview, that is troubling, that shows maybe you're wrong. Yeah, let's not look at that. Or let's subject that study to hostile scrutiny. Because if that's true, that's going to be ammunition for the other side. So like a lot of um, anti-Trump people, if something comes along that actually supports something Trump said, even if it's true, like you can't admit that into the canon of official information uh, because that's inconvenient. So when we do that, we become impervious to truth. We never change our minds because we have this ironclad paradigm protection system. And that's what freezes society into opposing polarized camps and prevents any progress. What comes to mind is that's such a luxury to have the time to just dig deep and to be a seeker of truth. I consider myself a seeker of truth, but it took me a lot of years to build up a life where I had even room in the schedule to seek truth at at like one-tenth of the depth that I, I wish I could because we live in this world where there is, for example, a money system and we have to, I listened to your amazing podcast with Zach Geis. Yeah. You had this, oh, just, it brought tears and just resonated so deeply that we live in this system that where we, some of our life force energy is constantly having to be co-opted. Talk it's to us so about the journey of finding, creating a life where we have space in our life, space in our psyche, space in our, our mind, body, spirit to, to spend energy to seek the truth. It's, it's not so much, you know, how much time and energy you spend on it. It's more what you said just now, space in your psyche. It's an orientation. It's a, it's a uh, yeah, an orientation toward openness. It's called humility. And when you carry that humility, which is really what humility is, is that the truth is more important than, than being right. <laughs> then the new information has room to come in and it doesn't take a lot of time uh, because you can, when, once you let go of being right and of being smart, <laughs> um, then your natural truth recognizing systems which are bodily can operate and they're not shrouded by the fog of ego identified conceptual categories like we can hear the ring of truth and and that doesn't even mean that somebody who's speaking and you can hear the ring of truth is actually um stating facts like truth is it's not unrelated to facts but it's not identical to facts either and so that's you know when at a time like right now when the facts are available to support any belief i want to have 
You know, it's yeah. not that that flat earthers are irrational. Um, it's that they are selecting different data points. Let's call them. I, I, I could, you know, if I want to, I can say wearing masks is uh, essential and your civic duty right now. And I can offer you 100 references to support that. And I can say wearing masks is unnecessary and counterproductive. And I could offer you 100 data points to support that. And, and that's what's happening in our public discourse. Yes. Each side, like, but the facts are on our side. What's wrong with you? There's something wrong with you. And, and, and so coming in from the outside, it's like, okay, how do I choose between these two sides? I can't choose based on the facts because they each present different facts. And, you know, you can even go, you can go as deep as you want. And here's the thing about taking the time, you know, like, you're right. I do have the luxury of time. And sometimes I do uh, read original studies in scientific journals, but even that one side's going to say, oh, who funded that study? What about this study? What did that study leave out? Have you looked at the raw data? Right. Um, like, yeah. Okay, so I'm just setting up a rhetorical question here. Um, in that context, where you cannot decide based on facts, how do you choose? How do you choose what to believe? How do you choose which worldview to inhabit? And this question operates in two ways. How do we actually choose? And how may we choose or how can we choose in order to be more in truth? And both of those are, are important questions to, to explore. So what are your personal answer to those questions? I, in, uh, ideally, <laughs> what I do uh, and what I'm learning to do is to uh, choose the belief system or the worldview that resonates with who I actually am and who I am becoming. So I'm like, how does it feel to be in this particular world story? Who do I become? If that world story depends on me carrying a very cynical view of human nature and contradicting my own experience that, say, most scientists are sincere, scrupulous people, you know, if I have to believe that like masses and masses of science, scientists are cynically perpetuating uh, deception, you know, I'm like, that just doesn't feel like who I am to look on people that way. And so that's, that would be an example. I, 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 who do I become believing this? If this is true, then what's true, and then what's true, and then what's true, and is, and eventually it either resonates or doesn't resonate with my soul evolution. For example, can I, I I'll give you one more example? Like when I lived in Taiwan, I became aware of phenomena that contradicted my education as to what was real and possible. Because in Taiwan, this was like the you know late 80s, early 90s, a lot of people were still very much in an, an agrarian Taoist Buddhist worldview, uh, probably still are today to a large extent. But back then, I mean, you know, it was, I mean, there were Qigong masters who could do things that I believe were impossible. I mean, Chinese medicine healed me of this injury that would have taken weeks on crutches. I mean, there's just so, so many phenomena that, that 
defied scientific explanation. People telling me they're ghost stories, you know, not as in this really weird thing happened, but more in, like no one thought they were crazy for having seen a ghost. They were like, oh, you better get a Taoist priest to clear that out. You know, it, it was like kind of matter of fact, you know. And so I was faced with a decision. Either I account for all of those reports by saying these people are just superstitious, they're backwards, they're poor observers of reality, uh, and I am more advanced than they are, or I could take them at face value. And, and both of those stories, both of those interpretations of the data were logical. Like they both fit the evidence. You know, that, that Qigong master, you know, who activated my points and I started pouring sweat, you know, like that was maybe some kind of psychological suggestion. And maybe he ran and turned the heat on in the building when he did that. And that's why I was sweating. And I'm not going to believe that shit. Like I could have gone there, but that just didn't feel good. And I made the choice to believe that there is something I'm being shown here. There's something beyond what I knew is possible. I made the choice to believe that not on the evidence. It didn't contradict the evidence, but I did not, the evidence cannot, can never compel us to choose what we believe and therefore to choose who we are because a state of belief is a state of being. This is reminding me of Byron Katie has this, you know, Byron Katie, she, she does this kind of inquiry practice and Sometimes at her workshops and seminars that I've attended, people say, well, which thoughts, which beliefs, which stories should I question? Because on some like ultimate cosmic level, all stories are stories. All stories are falsifiable. <laughs> which ones should I choose to question and which ones not to question? And what she says is so refreshingly simple. She says, if it causes stress, question those stories. If it doesn't cause stress, if it causes, I'm paraphrasing, but this is how I received her teaching is, if it causes you to feel joy and love in your heart and excitement about life and feel good within yourself, those are still stories, but they're stories that are working for you. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a nightmare, wouldn't you wanna wake up from the nightmare? But if you're having a happy dream, dream on, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just wonder if, if there might be some missed opportunities in that, in that advice. Like, you know, what if you, uh, you know, see a, a lump somewhere on your body and, you know, one story is that's cancer. Another story is, you know, that's just, you know, some random thing, nothing to worry about. And then you start feeling sick. One story is, oh, I just got the flu. Another story is that's cancer. Uh, I mean, at some point, if, if, if we're always going to take, take the interpretation that is not stressful, we could be ignoring some information that's knocking at the door louder and louder. Because sometimes when we're in a stage of life where our beliefs no longer serve us, then um, disturbing invaders come into those beliefs, uh, data points that don't fit, you know, things that, that are, are disturbing. And 
we can shut them out or we can let them in or accept their invitation to enter into a bigger, a bigger story. But I think like for me often in those times, I often kind of feel that the story that I've been in is, has been becoming confining. And this is maybe true on a social level right now, that there's a lot of people who kind of want it all to collapse, who've been looking forward to this ever since Y2K was a thing. That because we feel confined in too narrow a normality, we long for some catastrophe to happen that liberates us to the point where, where people you know, have grasped onto candidates for this catastrophe from peak oil to climate change to financial collapse and now COVID-19. And now with COVID-19, it's kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy because it is the reaction to COVID-19 more than the virus itself that is uh, showing us the infirmity of, uh, and the fragility of our society. And it would not be so fragile if on some level we weren't kind of done with it. And at the same time, we're afraid of that. We're afraid of the dissolving of our world. It's the same as the fear of death. We don't know what's on the other side. And, and what's that thing in psychology? Uh, there's a bias toward maintaining the status quo, uh, even- Confirmation bias? No. no, there's some other bias um, where, where it comes when assessing risk, like people have a preference for keeping things the way that they are rather than, it's like the devil that you know is preferred to the devil that you don't. So that, I can't remember the name of it, but there's, so yeah, there, we, we see in our, our current um, collective situation, the same simultaneous hunkering down and clinging to the old but also the desire to, to be liberated from, from the old. And different people in society hold different aspects of this collective ambivalence. Can you make some psychic predictions? What will the world look like 10 years from now? Yeah, I cannot make that prediction because that's really up to us. We're at a point of choice. It's more, rather than a prediction, I would rather make an invocation or a prophecy, which is to speak something into existence. And that prophecy would be that the world in 10 years will finally turn the corner and we will be collectively seeking to translate our emergent, holistic interbeing consciousness into new systems and new ways of relating, new politics, new economics. And in 10 years, we're not gonna have figured it out yet, but we will recognize that, that this new story is what we need to unify around. And that it will happen faster than we have any right to expect. I would also predict that um, this series of disruptions, you know, starting with COVID-19 and then the um, uh, civil unrest in the Western countries, especially the US, it's not over. And that something even bigger is coming, but I don't know what it is. 
but it's going to continue and accelerate over the next three years. Maybe three, three, four years. Yeah. If it's true that we incarnated here to learn and grow and evolve ourselves on a soul level, what are some opportunities right now that are not totally obvious? Opportunities for learning and growth that might be blind spots right now. Well, you know, that's, that's the answer to that would be unique to, to each person. I would say though, I mean, see, this wouldn't be news to a lot of people, but maybe one thing that, that is left out of political conversation is returning to place, relocalizing. Um, looking to the people and beings and place around us to source what we need and what makes life good, uh, to reconnect on that level. Because a lot of times people's, you know, vision of the future is like this global thing. And a lot of solutionaries uh, think in terms of scalable global systems. How can we re-engineer the money system? How can we re-engineer politics? And I think that even the concept of scaling something up carries a dangerous delusion that every place is the same as this place and that the solution that works here can be scaled and appropriately applied somewhere else. Uh, so maybe it's to come into more of the unique relationships that don't scale. I'm not sure how practical that is though for like people listening. Maybe you want to ask in a different way or? Well, I'm in a space of, I don't know. As I listen to you speak, I'm just, just super humbled to feel into how much I don't know. And I don't know how we will deepen and enrich our connections in the community level with all the physical distancing, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and sometimes I see that in my own life, limitation is what births creativity too, you know? It's just hard to see through this current stage that we're in. How can we deepen our community living when there's so much physical separation that's happening? Maybe the physical separation will remind us of how precious that is. This is one of the uh, elements of choice that we face. People sometimes talk about when we go back to normal, when we can have, you know, dances again, when we can do the things we used to do. And I'm like, that's not going to happen automatically. That's something that we have to reclaim because what the authorities of our society will tend to do is to keep us safe, according to their understanding. To, they won't relinquish control automatically because the whole uh, worldview is that improvement comes through control. And of course, you know, they're, they know of themselves that they have society's best interests at heart. Just like a parent controls their child to try to keep them safe. Don't do this, don't do that. Same thing with the authorities in our actually very infantilizing culture. They're not going to uh, of their own accord, let us, I mean, this is very significant that we even use words like that. They're not going to let us have the, the 
the freedom of association that we had um, unless we claim that. Because uh, there's always going to be a reason to stay locked down. The, you know, the virus, maybe, you know, getting COVID doesn't give you immunity. Uh, maybe immunity is only temporary. Maybe there's going to be another virus or a mutation or it's going to be H1N1 or et cetera, et cetera. Like there's always, just like after 9-11, the state of emergency was never, was never ended. It was a one-year state of emergency and it was renewed, you know, it's been renewed like 19 times. So if we want to have a society where we can have weddings again that aren't on Zoom and group hugs and, and festivals, then we're going to have to claim those things. And, 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 so, and maybe that claim will arise from realizing how precious they are. And maybe some of them we're realizing aren't that precious. You know, like... Maybe we won't have Burning Man or you know, events on that scale anymore. And maybe we won't travel across the continent to go to conferences anymore. But then maybe that's the bathwater that we want to throw away. But the baby, like maybe that is replaced by local Burning Mans with a few hundred people where we really know everybody and have sustained relationships with them that are multidimensional. You know, the person at that Burning Man is also the person who makes your kombucha, you know, or, uh, you know, babysat your kids, you know, or whose kids went to the rites of passage camp with your kids, like that kind of thing. Like maybe that's the society we want to move toward, not toward greater scale, but toward greater intimacy and depth of relationship that requires coming back together on a local level. So like these are the possibilities that lie in front of us. And maybe we want to claim some of them and maybe some of them were like, yeah, like for me, I'm kind of relieved not to be jetting around speaking at conferences anymore. They, the, the online ones, you know, they don't fulfill many of the purposes of these conferences, but they fulfill some of them. And it, I'm like, it kind of wasn't worth it. But there's something of those conferences that I loved that I do want in my life. But do I have to travel around the world to do that? Maybe not. So this is the kind of, it's an open question for me. And, and this is the, the kind of open question that we're invited into when things fall apart. We're like, okay, what we had, we no longer have. Do we want it actually? Maybe yes, maybe no. Wow, I'm seeing a million different permutations of this now. Thank you for opening that possibility. Like this whole model of your kids grow up and they get a job in San Diego or Vancouver or Amsterdam and start their own family. And then their family disperses and every generation like dispersion, dispersion, dispersion. Like maybe we're done with that, you know? Maybe, maybe our grown children stay in our area and we have extended families again. And that forms the backbone of, of new communities. A lot of these trends that are centuries in the making of globalization, depersonalization, um, standardization, uh, to turn these around, that is part of the new story that, I, that you know, we've been referencing. So I wrote this book called Super Wellness. It's based on this class that I've taught 26 or 27 times now. 
In class number one, we asked everybody this question. What is your personal definition of health? Because a lot of what, with regards to, you know, public health policy making, which is so deeply influencing our experience as humans right now, is based on a certain definition of health that maybe we don't always, we haven't had that dialogue as a society. I don't even want to say we don't agree with it or disagree. I, we, I can't make that statement because it hasn't been a dialogue yet. So what's your personal definition of health? You know, on, on an intellectual level, I mean, I would say that it's, it's wholeness and wholeness of what? Wholeness of not just the separate self, but wholeness of the self in relationship, in community. So relationship to the microbiome, you know, the relationship to other people, to the environment, um, a wholeness that includes uh, all of our psychological and physical relationships. Um, it's from, but it's also like, for me, it's just a feeling of vitality and aliveness. Uh, and I guess the feeling of aliveness depends on having these whole relationships because my aliveness, like what am I alive for? Why am I alive? If that, if I'm not using my life energy toward the purpose that it's there for, then my body will shut that down. The soul will be like, if you're, life energy is not well used, then you don't need it. And so I'll feel tired or lazy, fatigued. Uh, and, and I can understand that as a message from the soul to, to um, redirect my attention. So, so yeah, just for the definition though, uh, wholeness, um, aliveness, vitality. So how does that, if that were the definition of individual health, then that's a different kind of public health that we're looking at. If you were, um, I like to ask my guests these questions. If you were the king of your own island or, <laughs> like, or a head of the CDC or in some kind of position like that, what policies would you have created in response to this current pandemic situation? Yeah. And this, this question is inseparable from what would be like too big a step for people where they're at right now. So there's a little bit of wishful thinking involved here, but, but I would say that this would be a wake up call that our society is not well and that we need to break free of our confining paradigms about what health is and how to maintain it. Uh, so I would direct like the same, like the level of funding right now that's going toward pharmaceutical responses to COVID-19, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. I'd be like, yeah, we're gonna devote that to herbal medicine, energy medicine, like all of these marginalized modalities, uh, Chinese medicine that have actually even in their marginalized state have proven very effective against COVID-19 and other diseases like it. I mean, there's 
you know, on the fringes, there, there's research actually that suggests that this is viable. Uh, and, and the reason that it's not, you know, promoted by the CDC or the WHO has nothing to do with its efficacy. It's simply that it doesn't fit the paradigm. So I, I devote resources to that and put everything on the table. Um, create committees that, that include conventional virologists and epidemiologists along with uh, alternative practitioners and ordinary citizens. But I'm also hearing like doing more of a holistic all-in analysis about different measures such as the lockdown, for example, like yeah. looking at all levels of the human experience and how that creates health and well-being, right? Right, because right. like the lockdown only makes sense from a very narrow epidemiological lens. Uh, and if that, I mean, there's a lot of epidemiologists who say that, that, was, that it was a mistake and that what we should have done is let un, people who are not that susceptible get exposed and protect those who are vulnerable. But anyway, too late for that. But even on those terms, a lot of people get excluded. Uh, when you frame things in terms of how many people are going to get sick, how many people are going to die. Like the people who get excluded are first and foremost, the hundreds of millions of people in the world, maybe billions, but at least hundreds of millions of people who feed their children on the money that they make that day. Lockdown, even if from a epidemiological lens, even if it saves X number of lives from COVID-19, how many people is it going to kill from a sociological lens, from an economic lens? Like those viewpoints, that data, that information, those people need to be brought into the conversation because the, the standard epidemiological conversation is actually coming from a very privileged lens that doesn't fully incorporate uh, the way that hundreds of millions of people on this earth live and the impact that a lockdown has on them. And that's just one example. I mean, we could also talk about, um, basically it's, the, it's to open the gates to the things that we are not measuring, that we've chosen not to measure because they're inconvenient or because we don't even know that they exist. So that could be the holistic medical data points. It could be the experience of subsistence people in third world countries. It could be the experience of people subject to domestic violence because of lockdown, you know, like, to, to broaden our consciousness, to include the things that have been excluded. That's the, the basic principle that I would invite if I were installed by the uh, ETs as the uh, health czar. It's easy to get your blood boiling thinking about this. The injustices and that very privileged place that says we only care about this one little sliver of the reality yeah. and not the rest. How do we reconcile that? You know, there are people that are like, oh, we got to sue the government because of all the damages. And how do we- I think we need to, we need to trust in the basic goodness of human nature, uh, which says that, you know, it's not about suing the government. I'm, and I'm not saying that we should never sue the government, okay? but. But basically, to carry the, the understanding that if only you knew 
what you are doing, then you would no longer want to do that. If only you, ha if only you could hear this story, the story of this immigrant, the story of this black grandmother, the story of this day laborer in Bangladesh, uh, then if you had that information, then you would see the world differently. You would make different choices and understand that even if you had that information, even if, if you could bring that information to policymakers, that they are st stuck inside a institution and a, and a structure, a system that makes it very difficult for them to deviate from the expectations of that system. If they deviate too much, even their colleagues, even if their colleagues also um, support that deviation, they can't be seen supporting it. So you can have like a, a, a conspiracy of, of, of people making a collective choice that not a single one of them actually agrees with. That happens. So we have to understand the difficulty of these people's situation. Um, and and so, so, yeah, like pressure as ordinarily conceived, political financial pressure, that has a role. But if we want to change the world beyond our capacity to force change, we have to get those that we've othered and demonized and made enemies of onto our side. We have to speak to the part of them that wants the same thing that we want. We have to see them as full human beings and uh, even sacred human beings. And, and if we're able to access that part of them through, for example, the sharing of stories without an agenda, without trying to bludgeon them or guilt them with those stories, without this layer of interpretation that says, see, you're a perpetrator. But just to say, brother, sister, I know that if you knew this, you would see things differently. And I want to share this with you. Without judgment, you know, without blame, if we can do that, it's a lot easier to hear the stories if they're coming at you with that spirit. Then they're not, even if we are, all, are also exerting pressure of the traditional kind, they're not going to resist that pressure as much. So I think this is, and this is a core, to bring it full circle, this is a core understanding of interbeing that this other person is not really separate from ourselves, that, that they have as much beauty and divinity as we have. That's, um, that's a level of maturity that is so inspiring. And there are times where it feels like we're quite far from that level, but we're also changing so fast. We're all yeah. evolving and growing as fast as possible right now. See, that's, that's a prophecy I would like to make is that we are, or you just made it actually, that we are very rapidly growing and evolving toward that level of maturity. It wants to happen so bad. And all we have to do is to feed it with attention and say, yeah, that is happening. It's one of those things that you, you say it's happening and it starts happening an invocation it is happening like i see it all over the place especially among young people you know a level of maturity that was unheard of when i was that age when i was 22 there was no such thing as taking ownership of your projections 
<laughs> it's not in the vocabulary. Right. Yeah. Well, Charles, I could speak with you all day, every day. I just, just love the surprise and richness of everything that you share in this conversation on the internet, your books, just so much gratitude for your existence on the planet, especially right now. Well, thank you, Edith. I appreciate that. And I'm also really looking forward to uh, hosting you on my podcast. Um, because I've heard a little bit of your story and it's very moving. Mm -mm. Thank you. It just seems like since COVID started, it was just always every day is like the very best of times and the very worst of times at the same time, all the time, including when I had the gift of connecting with you mm -hmm. it was definitely the best of times. <laughs> so could you please tell our audience um, how they can connect more with your work and your different offerings, new things that you're working on right now? Um, uh, just my website, charleseisenstein.org. I've been, you know, I've been doing just like a lot of uh, podcasts and things. Um, I wrote some articles, you know, those that you mentioned. I'll continue writing some articles. My books are on the website. There's nothing, nothing special that I want to uh, promote right now. It's all there. I should have asked you this living in the gift economy, everything on your website, all of your offerings are freely offered. People pay whatever feels right within them. Yeah, like for online course, I have a bunch of online courses and, you know, it's like, it's always kind of artificial. Like, like, why do you charge $300 or $500 or whatever for an online course? You know, like it could be anything because, because a lot of these, once you put it out there, there's no extra cost for a new person signing up for it. So, so I just, I, that's one reason that I decided, yeah, you know, I'll just, uh, it might be super valuable to one person and worthless to somebody else. So I'll let you decide what the right return gift is. So I make it, uh, you know, in the spirit of gift. And that way, you know, people who are hard up for money, they can take these courses and those who are affluent can support those who are not. And we're kind of all in it together. Because I remember when I was broke, you know, like 10, 12 years ago. I mean, I, I remember what it felt like. Like, oh, I can't go to this workshop. I can't go to this seminar. I can't do this course. You know, it, it didn't feel good. And I'm like, you guys, why are you even doing this? Is it to make money? Or is it because you actually believe in it? And if you actually believe in it, why would you ever want to limit it to only those who can pay a certain amount of money? So that, you know, that, that whole, I just don't feel comfortable in that paradigm. And, and so this is my exploration of an alternative and I'm not even sure if it's the best alternative, but it seems to work for me. You know, it's, it generates enough voluntary income that, that people, you know, that can continue offering it and it's accessible to everybody. Does it fluctuate a lot? How are you able to budget your life? Cause you have a home, you have four children and there are expenses. Help us to dismantle that scarcity thinking, please. It just seems to have worked out really well for quite a while now. Uh, you know, sometimes it like gets a little bit low, you know, and sometimes it gets a bit high and, and th th that would be a long conversation. I, I, 
I mean, maybe it's just working because my, uh, I'm in a, you know, a period of uh, yun, of, you know, taiyun in Chinese, like good, good financial fortune. And, you know, whatever I do is going to work well until I reach a point where I don't have good taiyun and some, and then it won't work anymore. Like the mysteries of this universe are profound. That is the most satisfying answer I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And it feels so true within me when I hear it. That sometimes, and that's, that's the spirit that I'm working on bringing to, I hope, as many areas of my life as possible. It's just that, that there's, there's unseen forces at work, and it, it matters a lot of times much more the intention of goodness that you bring to the situation than what is on the 3D level the thing that it appears to be. Yeah. Like we'd like to think that we're in charge of things, you know, that, that either it's your hard work and your planning that makes you uh, successful or it's your, the new age version of that, you know, it's your, your, your affirmations and your visualizations. What if, what if we're totally deluded? And as it says in the Bible, you know, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. And the, the just think it's because they've been just but it's actually just because it's raining. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't think that we are as much in charge in this universe as, as we would like to think. And, and for me, that's like a gateway to gratitude and to, to awe uh, at, the, at the mysteries of this universe. Okay, my last question. You, your books are... Oh, I have Ascent of Humanity is in the bedroom, but you've written all these different books and just thousands upon thousands of pages of very thoughtful, deep, rich insights. If you were to distill all of this richness down into one simple essence, one single piece of advice, what in your opinion is the most important piece of advice for us stepping into our highest levels of human possibilities? To step into our highest levels of human possibilities, I would say that the most important thing to know um, is that your purpose here is to serve life, to serve the evolution and thriving of life, to serve the coming alive of the universe into greater and greater complexity and beauty and aliveness. That's why the human species is here. We haven't maybe been acting like that, but that's why we're here. And through this initiation we are going through right now, collectively, that is what we will come to. And individually, that's why we're here. What form that takes is unique to every person. It could be operating on a very small family level, place level, could be a more of a global mission kind of thing, but that, so to, to step into a higher level of effectiveness, we need to know that. We need to know that that's why we're here because that knowledge creates a uh, conduit to life energy and creative energy. And the attitude of service to life accesses the powers of life that can greatly magnify our own powers and allow us to accomplish things that there's no way that we could accomplish 
through our own causal force. I hope that wasn't too complicated an answer to a very simple question. The short answer is know that you are here in service to life. Thank you so, so much for that. You've given us so much richness to explore and I'm sure not just me, but everybody else listening right now is excited to go back through and re-listen a few more times because there's so much depth, so much deep resonance for us to just feel into and embody more fully from everything that you shared today. I'm excited for humankind in the year 3000 to look back and, um, and celebrate. Mm -hmm. this period and recognize what a beautiful journey this all is, you know, and it's be yeah. beautiful because of the challenges of it all. Yeah. And I can even feel the gratitude of those descendants right now for the struggles that we are in. Yeah. All of you guys listening, just so much gratitude for each of you for those tender moments where you love your children a little bit more, where you spend the time in nature and hug that tree a little bit longer. The sweet interactions, whether it's hugging an actual friend or hugging them energetically from six foot away, all those tiny, seemingly mundane things that those are not so mundane after all, that those ordinary moments are truly extraordinary and maybe the thing that causes us to go to that tipping point to create that more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Mm, thank you, Edith. Thank yeah. you so You're much. In. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Hi, friends. Did you love that interview? If you did, please leave a review and share with all your friends so that many more people can benefit from these game-changing insights. You can also go onto our website, dredithubuntu.com, and subscribe to our newsletter, where you'll receive free trainings and next-level ninja tools that we only share on our newsletter. Together, let's turn your life into a brilliant masterpiece.